and welcome to Veterans to Success. Today, well, I've got a great guest. Rather than give a glowing introduction, because she does deserve that and it'd take me ages, what we're going to do is we're going to be bringing out Carol's past experience and what she gets up to now during the chat. So, hello, Carol. Carol Uri, how are you today and what what you're doing and what you're up to? Hi, Joe. Well, so first of all, thanks for having me on your podcast. It's uh, it's great to actually be on a podcast where I can talk about something other than alcohol. <laughs> As you know, I'm, I'm an alcohol-free coach. Yeah. So it's really good to sort of chat about, yeah, my time in the army. But I'm really good. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm looking forward to the warmer weather, I must say. It has been a bit nippy, but I'm loving seeing the snowdrops out. <laughs> yeah, it, I, yeah, I, I agree. It has been a bit nippy, and especially in the morning before there's any sun, definitely. Mm, mm. So, l- listen, let's just jump straight in because your story is fabulous uh, and there's a lot of trials and tribulations, which I know you're sharing with today, and thank you for being able to share it, will help many, many people. So... Before you joined the military, what was your situation and what was the build-up to joining the military? I was I was living at home, um, just outside Lee, and I left school and then went to college, left college, and I started in um, a council-run old people's home or residential care. I've always had a vocation for I'm I've got I'm a woman of faith. I've got a deep Christian faith, and I believe God put me on this earth to to look after people. And from the age of 10, 11, I was running errands for the local elderly people and I was we used to have our coal delivered in the back streets and I used to throw their ton of coal in for them I used to do little dusting jobs and vacuum and get 50p so I've always sort of been that type of person in the care side so that naturally progressed into my working life so I started in um yeah a residential care um just outside Barnsley I was there for about five or six years now my my brother joined the um engineers at 16 and a half and went down to Chepstow to do his training. Right. And I'd got, I mean, I'd got a few family members that had been military, no no immediate family. It's really strange how it happened, Joe, to be honest, because I'd lo- I'd missed my bus at Barnsley um, bus station. And the Army Careers Office was right in the bus station. And right. I just thought, do you know what? I'll just nip in. <laughs> as, you do, as you do. <laughs> <laughs> she sort of said to me, you know, what are you interested in? I said, well, I don't really know. She said, what are you doing now? And I told her. And she said, have you heard of the QARENC, Queen Alexander's Royal Army Nursing Corps? And I went, never, not heard of them at all. So I just arranged to go and have a, um, a test and I passed. And I joined the army, um, the QAs as a healthcare, well, it was a ward stewardess then actually, which are now healthcare assistants um, in... April 1987. It doesn't seem that long wow. ago. Yeah, yeah. I know <laughs> yeah. it's like yesterday, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's amazing. And and I thought I thought when when you said you missed your bus, I thought you were going to say, and an army bus pulled up, whisked whisked me <laughs> off straight to training, and there I was. I'm in. Not quite. <laughs> so 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 you you're destined now after after clearly your life started to be gelled around curling for people. You mm. know, you're now going to training in the Queen Alexander Nursing Corps, which mm. by the way, I uh, I think I think you guys are great because you looked after me a few times when I was in. And so what happened? What was training like and and, mm. and you know, were the early mornings where the sergeant screaming at you or was it a little bit more sedate? 
They used to take the pee out of us, the other girls, um, because like the WRAC, uh, we had our own rooms. We didn't have to, in our billets, we didn't have to like share like big dormitories. And we were, we, we were pampered a little bit, to be honest, Joe. But saying that, it, the training was still tough. It was the um, training centre down in Aldershot. Yeah. Um, it, there were beautiful grounds. It was really lovely. But the staff, um, yeah, they were tough. They were tough. Um, early mornings up. Um, I remember having to run around the block. I remember being in the um, classroom and one of the sergeants after lunch obviously thought we were sleepy and we'd have to um, right up, out the block, down the stairs, round the block a few times, back up again. Um, we'd be on parade. Um, I always remember, actually, uh, <laughs> we, were, we were having a test for parade and you know what it's like bullying your boots or bullying your shoes, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. as we had. And uh, a pair of tights used to bring them up, an absolute treat. So I, w- I was always the, well, I designated myself as the polishing up person before parade. So our hats had quite a bit of a height on them. So I used to hide a pair of tights in front <laughs> of my hat. And when the, the major used to come down and they said the Sergeant Noble, I think her name was, um, and I don't, I can't remember them. Major's name, and uh, while they were having a conflab about our parade and, and and our test, and said my shoes, Carol, because we were going on parade, so I quickly whipped my tights out, my hat, gave her shoes a bit of a polish, and popped it back in just as the sergeant and the major were turning round. So it's like <laughs> it was fun. It was fun. I mean, it was really stressy at the time. I mean, that's just a little example, but I think the camaraderie and the people you meet, um, you know, you, you really do. Um, develop some really, really deep friendships in the forces. Mm. And and that's really important. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners can really relate to that. And then it's the same with any sort of, like even the, the, you know, the emergency services out in Civil Street. It's very much the camaraderie. Yeah. Um, you know, my dad was a miner. It was very much down the mines as well and, and, yeah. and sort of... So, yeah, I did my training. We only did our training in those days for about eight weeks. Oh, right, um, okay. Yeah, and now I think it's about, I think the girls, the QAs, I don't know if they're at Litchfield now. I think there might be, and it's about a three-month training, and they do, I mean, we did, we had to go away on exercise for weekends. You know, we had to get in the mud and crawl yeah, in yeah. Our, our greens, and we had, you know, we still had to um, go out on the ranges. So we did much the same as the guys. We'd, we didn't very much do... You know, the combat fitness tests so much. Yeah, that yeah. sort of came later on. Right. But I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Yeah, really so, enjoyed it. Right, so so eight weeks then. So that's just a sort of basic training to uh, take the civvy out of you and put some of the army, military into you. So mm. then what happens then? Because I know you were accomplished as a QA, and so what happened then with your ongoing training and and something that we're going to come on to later is about mentors and coaches that helped you. So what happened next? Um, we all got our postings then and I happened to stay in Aldershot. Um, so I was a little bit disappointed because I'd seen Aldershot for a couple of months. And, I, you know, I was quite interested in, in going other places up and down the UK. I don't think we actually got on our first posting. I don't think we went abroad. Um, mm. So I ended up in Aldershot and I on and off ended up in Aldershot with a couple of tours. So I did about seven years in total in Aldershot. Went down to Woolwich for a little while, but our training was two years. So 
although I'm not a registered general nurse, the training was was um, quite in-depth, really. But the start of it was the ward stewardesses. That was mainly, it was assisting the nurses, the RGNs on the ward. And then there were SENs, the state enrolled nurses back in those days. And we sort of assisted them. And then they phased out the state enrolled nurses and we were upgraded for want of a better word. Um, and we were given a lot more responsibility on the wards. So, I mean, to the point where I ended up being a sergeant and I would have my own patients, I would do my own ward round. Uh, and the only, you know, we would do lots of... Um, yeah, interventions and things with the patients, except for drugs. The drugs was always the, you know, the registered general nurse. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, yeah, so I spent a long time in Aldershot and did my two years training and worked in maternity, antenatal, postnatal and the labour ward for a couple of years, which I really loved, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's something oh. I'd never seen. And, oh. you know, the midwives are just such amazing people. And bringing in, bringing new life into the Yeah, world. yeah. And there was oh. special care, baby unit. And I remember being up. I remember this particular tiny little premature babies. And I remember them called the Cunningham twins. And their little head fitted in the palm of my hand. And the teeth oh. were so massive. And I just remember really enjoying it. Yeah, really enjoying it. It was that's good fab- fun. Yeah, that's fabulous to hold a life in your mm. Mm. Such, a, such a young, defenceless life. Wow. Yeah. And then, yeah. So where, where did you go after the shot? After all the um, shot? Let's have a look. Where did I go? I went to Germany. Yeah. Went right. to Rintown. At that point, yeah. I'd met my husband, um, Kevin, in 91. And we got married in 93. Uh, he was a civvy. Right. And we, um, I got posted out to Germany. So he gave up. In fact, no, they didn't have a hiring. They, they didn't have any accommodation for us. So I actually went over on my own for four months and lived in the and lived in the nurses' accommodation. And Kevin moved back in with his parents. And then after four months, they found us a German hiring, which was just outside um, where the hospital was based. And Kevin came across and worked for the quartermasters, um, right. which was yeah, it was great. And we we were there. Only a year. It was really interesting what happened because um, normally the the accommodation is usually signed over to the guy and it's usually the woman that's a civvy, where in my career yeah. it's always been the boot on the other foot. Yeah, yeah. So when when I became pregnant with my daughter Lucy in um, 95, there was some a lot of red tape. And unfortunately, I had to leave Germany. All right, okay. How come? I was Y listed back to my I was Y listed back to my um training. But what I did was I mean it was all a bit scandalous really when I think about it now. It's like, you know, we talk about um equality. Yeah. Um because I was a female and I was Y listed, I I can't remember all the ins and outs, but basically we had to leave. So I I sort of pressed the CEO for a a, a a preferential posting up to Catrick because Catrick was only about an hour away from my parents. Right. Okay. So um, we went up to I went up to Catrick up to the Duchess of Kent Military Hospital, which I understand's not there anymore. I was speaking right. to someone. It got changed into a psychiatric hospital. That's near near Richmond, up in North Yorkshire. So I I ended up there, um, and I had my daughter at North Allerton at the Friaridge uh, Civil Hospital, and um, yeah, so it was. Catrick was was great. I, I um yeah, I enjoyed it. I, I think I missed I missed Bosnia. Or was it the Gulf? Maybe by the skin of my teeth. 
I, I think I'd got. Um, I was breastfeeding Lucy. Yeah, she was because it, it was Gulf Gulf One, and then it must have been Gulf. Gulf yeah, Gulf, it was. Yeah, yeah. It was. The, it must have been the first Gulf War because it was. It was ninety. She was nine. It was ninety five. Yeah. So I can't remember, but I remember being shortlisted and my the CEO calling me up and saying, Carol, be prepared. Mm. Uh, and I was completely mortified. I mean, I joined up. I was a soldier and, you know, it's my job. I was still breastfeeding my daughter, who I think was about seven months at the time. And what happened was one of the guys was going and one of the QAs who was married to this guy said, practically begged to me to say, Carol, please let me take your place. We were the same rank, I believe. Uh, I can't remember. Anyway, um, I said, well, you know, I'm breastfeeding my daughter. It's probably not the best time, but that would be fabulous. And it just happened that she went to see the CEO, the CEO granted it, and she took my place. So, yeah, yeah I mean, when I think about it now, you know, again, I've got a faith. I wasn't meant to go at that time. I later yeah. went to Bosnia, but, um, you know, uh, it just wasn't the time for me so that that allowed me to stay at home. I was working in outpatient, so it was a nine-to-five job as well. And yeah. I worked in recovery, which was a nine-to-five job. So it worked quite well with my young yeah. young baby, really. I, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, one, one of the reasons why, uh, and thank you for coming on my, my podcast as a guest, during my these sessions, I want to get both sides uh, uh, of the coin or both sides mm. of the story. Because, you know, I, I've had some interesting conversations with sisterhood, if you like, the females in the art. Yeah. And the way you guys are treated is uh, sometimes, <laughs> it, it, and, and I wouldn't have realised it at the time, but now looking back, you think, wow. No. <laughs> uh, so, so like, when, when you just get told, oh, you're right, we're, we're, we're ousting you out of your house and, and, and you're not going to live in Germany anymore, you're going back to the UK. I mean, what sort of challenges did that give you and how did it make you feel? The challenges were... This is a really practical challenge. We had a cat right. and my husband was obviously going to be out of work because yeah. we were moving up to Catrick, so he didn't have a job. Um, there was no promotion for me. I was just being moved. The cat had to go into quarantine. There was no cat passports then. That was like well over a thousand pounds. I think it was something like six months um, and the cat was going to Pocklington, New York, so that caused a real issue. So I actually went up to see the matron and asked if the army would foot the bill for the quarantine because it wasn't my fault I was being yeah, yeah, yeah. kicked out of Germany. The family's officer, he said his hands were tied. There was nothing he could do about it. Anyway, there was no no support for the finances with the cat, so the cat had to go over to, you know, in quarantine um, we still had, we had a car loan, we'd bought a car over there, we'd got a loan. So the financial stress was pretty awful, to be honest, Joe. Yeah. It, it wasn't good, but we had no option. There was nothing I could do about it. You know, the the law had spoken and that was it. Yeah. So I was happy, though, to be going back to the UK. Yeah. I wanted to have Lucy in the UK and I wanted to be near my parents because I was yeah. a bit of a home bird. Yeah. And I really did miss my family when I was out in Germany. So that's why I asked for a preference. I used that bit of a wedge, really, for a preferential posting to Catrick. And, and, and it's in, thank you for that. It's interesting because, you know, if you're you're listening now and you think, oh, Cat, what big deal? But actually, that that's just a snapshot of mm-hmm. the whole 
inconvenience, if I could use that word. When you pulse it right, so you, you're heavily laden with child or you're pregnant, mm. right? your husband, your hubby's going to be unemployed, you've got mm. you've got an expense. I mean, what rank were you then back then? Um, I was a, oh, now, I can't remember. As a lance corporal or a corporal. Yeah, I think okay, so corporal, as a lance corporal, I think. As a lance jack or a corporal, mm. right? Back it back then, I don't suppose you're on massive amounts of money. No, uh, no. So, so a thousand quid hit with a thousand quid quarantine bill is like mm. massive. You've you've been posted for something that you haven't asked for. Yeah. Mm. So, so that would have been a a, a bit of a challenge. So, yeah, it was. Yeah. Yeah. So the the alternative was Ashvale, which was where why listing should have been. So it would it would have been back to all the shot again. Yeah. So, um, which I didn't really want to go back to. So I, I suppose I saw it. I just, I just took it on the nose because when you join the military, you know, I'm talking, you know, in the nineties now, yeah, jo- yeah, yeah. you know, a lot of things have changed, but basically they say jump and you say how high and that's, yeah. that's how it was. That's how I saw it anyway. And that, and that's exactly how I saw it as well. When, mm. when you were told that. So, so you've now finished your posting, uh, Lucy's older. Uh, what you mentioned Bosnia, so what mm. happened there? That was a yeah. That was um, I left Catrick. Lucy was two, and I got I got promoted to sergeant, and I went down to um, we got quarter in Wittering. Thank you. I went down to Wittering uh, to work at the uh, Peterborough City Hospital, as it is now Peterborough District Hospital. Then, so yeah, Lucy was two. Kevin managed to find a job uh, locally. We ended up living in the village, which I'm still in now, actually. Um, he's a paint sprayer by trade, so he went and got himself a job. Uh, so everything sort of settled down, really. And then um, I think we'd it was 97, April 97-ish. I can't remember all the dates, Joe, but I t- we we decided to buy a house in uh, in the small village outside Stamford, Lincolnshire, where I am now. And um, just as we moved in in the August, Lucy had just turned two. I went off to Bosnia on my birthday, actually, 30th of September, 97. Um, but how that happened was it was a bit of it was like fate, really. Remember I told you about this young Lance Jack saying, I'll go out to the Gulf for you, Carol. Yeah. Well, I, one of the lance corporals on my, I was a sergeant then, one of the lance corporals, Terry, she, this was when you could, you were allowed to stay in the army as a single mum. Because when I first joined, you had to leave um, if you became pregnant. So Terry had been told she was going out to Bosnia and her daughter was about four or five months old, maybe a bit older. And I was absolutely mortified that she was having to go to Bosnia so I did what I felt I needed to do and put my hand up, and I actually volunteered. Ah, so you returned the favour then? I returned oh. the favour, and it was just it just happened to be what it was. You know, it was just a bit of fate, really. And Terry still talks about it to this day, you know. Um, uh, but for a single mom to leave her daughter behind for a six-month tour in Bosnia, you know, at least I'd got my husband at home. Uh, and he'd got family around him yeah. within distance, but family around him that that could help him while I was away. So yeah, I um, I put my hand up and went to Sipovo, um, and we were um, 
alongside the the engineers the engine it was after the war um the engineers were there putting back the street lighting and building the bridges back up and the roads and things that, and that's we, that's sappers is it royal engineers yeah royal yeah, engineers yeah, yeah. yeah. and uh, we were right next door to them and we were in an old factory and I um, ran the outpatients department. I wasn't on the wards and I looked after three consultants and we actually provided a service for the locals. And I got to know quite a few of the locals, actually. Um, yeah, so it was it was it was good. It was hard to be away from home. My little girl wouldn't talk to me on the phone. That was really difficult. Yeah, it was a it was a. And it wasn't a dry tour. So there was alcohol around. And I think that was me and a lot of people getting bored in the evenings. We shared the mess with the officers to start with, and I don't think we weren't keen and they weren't keen. So the engineers decided to build a, a bar in a room. We <laughs> as as a room. they would, yeah, of and course. And we had great fun. Me and, there was only, there was, I think, about 35 of us, and there was only four females and the rest were guys. I, and, I, and I would imagine being a, a, being a former Royal Engineer, that was a very well-built bar. It absolutely was, Joe. We had, I mean, we <laughs> us girlies got into the rag rolling. We got some paint from somewhere, and we were decorating everything and making it all look pretty. The guys were hammering away, and I remember, in fact, talking about it because I don't talk about this very often. Um, I remember the engineers. If you rang the bell, you had to buy a rounding for everybody, yeah. which is a normal yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there was one or two particularly tight people that never sort of got around <laughs> in, and it was dirt cheap, to be fair, the booze. So what the engineers did was they rigged up a wire from the bell, <laughs> fed it down the wall un- into onto the surface of the bar and put a beer, uh, like a mat, one of the, you know, these big mats that you get in the pubs. Yeah. And everybody knew by this person that was really tight and never got around in. And we were all at the other side of the bar. And this person put their pint down on the mat. Of course, the bell rang. Their yes. face dropped. We all went, yay! <laughs> <laughs> and had a great, you know, great time. And the local drink was, um, oh, I can't remember what they called it. It was like, a, oh, it tasted like meth, Joe. <laughs> there were, there were, um, they were into tree, it was trees and logging and things where we were. Yeah. Plum brandy, that's what it was uh, called. Plum yeah. brandy. Oh, it was I remember taking a little sip of it and I have never felt so ill in all my life. I threw it straight back up, ran to the toilet. I felt so ill for the rest of the day. But but yeah, we used to play really hard. It was hard work, you know. We had we we got one day off a week, um, and we were always kept busy always busy there was always something to do we were sweeping or like clearing the snow because it was snowy we had the sea kings with us and we were a fueling station for helicopters and that was right. fascinating to me so a lot of like apaches and a lot of, we had the sea king which was designated to us but and i got i got a lot of helicopter uh, traveling around so yeah. oh, in fact wow. we we went to i'm going on now joe you've got no 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 I'm, 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 I'm all ears no that's okay I looked after a, a lovely, lovely man called Colonel Bat, who was a physician, and the M- the nearest MRI place was Sarajevo. So we got in the ambulance and off we went to Sarajevo with a with a patient. And the medics um, went to fill the ambulance up and put the wrong fuel in it. So it was an American place we went to, and the wrong fuel was put in, which completely buggered up the the, the ambulance. So being a colonel, he was like, "Well, I need to get back." So we actually got. 
a flight back in a Lima helicopter and I got oh, to nice. sit at the front with the night vision goggles on. I was like well made up. <laughs> so. Yeah, I bet you were. Nice, yeah. nice aircraft. Yeah. Yeah, wow. yeah. It's really good. So so you've you've had an interesting career so far and mm-hmm. you've you've had to improvise, adapt and overcome with pregnancy of Lucy and then and then feeling maybe slightly dejected and posted back to the UK with Hubby. You've been out to Bosnia, Hubby's back home looking after Lucy. And then what happens? Because I suppose there's all sorts of things going on in your head about what does the future hold? So Yeah, um, I think I'm in my mind up while I was out in Bosnia that I, I didn't want to... When Lucy came on the scene, it completely changed the whole thing, really. Uh, and it really questioned what motherhood was all about for me personally. Now, that's not saying there's a lot of very successful women out there that that juggle uh, a military career and motherhood uh, and do a fantastic job. For me, it was a bit of a, a, a pinch of reality saying, Carol, where do you want your life to go? Where do you see things progressing? Now, if I hadn't had children, I would have... I know for a fact I would have just carried on and done my um, full service. In fact, yeah. um, I know the healthcare assistants, you could take a trade and you could actually, because you we were we couldn't commission at that time, but I now know that you can commission um, and, and you can do further training. So I probably would have done that. Um, but after Bosnia, um, I was told I was going to um, Kosovo, soon right. after i think it was about 18 months later so and around about 98 99 round about then yeah um and i was due my staff sergeant i've been i've been recommended for promotion to staff sergeant so i was doing my training i was down at the gym and getting ready um to go i think it was down in hasler down gosport where we were doing our training I, or i was being posted there i can't remember but i just remember sitting looking at lucy thinking I can't do this. I really can't do this. And I wanted another baby. I wanted another a friend for for Lucy. So I decided once um, they said about Kosovo, I just said I don't want my promotion, which they were like, really? And I was like, no. I, um, I mean, I've been a bit of a flyer. I think I was as promoted to sergeant after about nine years, which was pretty oh, much right, heard okay. of. So, you know, I was pretty good at my job and, and I really loved what I was doing, um, working on the wars, looking after people. Um, but, yeah, I had to make a decision. So I gave, it was 12 months notice then. I don't know if it's still the same. So yeah. I gave it my notice and uh, I decided to leave. Yeah, so that was... and And it's always interesting because I remember... 12 months notice is, you know, uh, for civvies, you think, oh, a month's notice or three months notice, do I have to work my notice and is it going to change? Mm-hmm. Right, 12 months notice, right? <laughs> Everybody knows the writing's on the wall. How did that affect the way you were treated? I don't think it affected any. Oh, I'll tell you what it did affect. I was um, I was an MVQ assessor. The national vocational qualifications were out then. And I'd done my level two. I was doing my level three. I'd done phlebotomy, so I was taking blood on the wards, and um, I'd become an assessor, so I'd, I could assess other people. It's all part of my training with, yeah. you know, the, the privates and the lance corporals, corporals under me. I was doing their MVQ assessments, and I wanted to progress, and that I, I was stopped doing that because it was like, what's the point? Yeah, You're leaving, yeah. and so. 
that was sort of taken away from me, which was a bit of a shame because I would have liked to have finished my level three and even maybe gone on to the management level four. But um, yeah, that would that was stopped. But saying that, the the um, I can't remember what it's called resettlement. The resettlement yeah. grant that came in enabled me to do my seven three or seven, I think it was called, which allowed me to um, teach in adult education. Um, so I did my resettlement um, locally here at Cottesmore, actually, because Cottesmore, the RAF base, is just up the road. I don't think I was treated any differently, to be fair, uh, okay. other, than, well, other than the training. Yeah. The training was stopped, yeah. 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 So so now you're in the millennium, right, mm. and that's probably when new new century, new start, new everything. So that's the year you left then, is it? Really? 2000, yeah. yeah. Left in March, 29th of March, 2000. I remember all the dates really well. Yeah. I was on a night shift and I remember... I remember driving home from a night shift and they presented me with, they knew I was going to be starting a business. I was looking to start a business, which didn't happen, but they bought me this beautiful leather briefcase and I had this lovely send off, but it was a bit, it was like a bit of a deflation. I felt like, I felt elated, but I felt really scared. I mean, I got, you know, I was a mum, I was going to be, Work. I was going to be working in the community as a as a, a carer, but I think I was missing out on the camaraderie and the good friends. Yeah. And I remember coming home and leaving work at half seven that morning after my night last night shift, and putting the radio on. There was um I can't remember what what record it was now, and bouncing around in the car, being really happy and and elated, but then feeling really sad. It was 13 mm. years had come to an end and it was like, this is it. You know, I'd, I'd, I'm happy following rules. That's the thing, Joe. I love structure and I yeah. love rules. And that's why I found the army really um, easy to get on with because I, I was a rule follower, not a rule breaker. So yeah. you know. Good. That well, and, and, <laughs> and that works, doesn't it, in the it army? It does, definitely. So, yeah. so, right, so you've done 13 years, you're listening to the tune, the tune finishes and then you feel, oh, what, what next? you got beautiful daughter Lucy, great, yeah. great hubby, everything's great, but now you've got the realisation, I'm out in the military. How was that transition? How did that go? I felt lost. I really felt lost. It was like the option was to go back into the community on a very, very basic wage after being on a sergeant's wage, which was pretty good compared to Civvy Street as a healthcare assistant. You know, I think yeah. it was about 25 grand, which was a lot of money, you know, back then. And my husband was um, working and he was earning, you know, a, a decent wage. So... I suppose we've got a mortgage, obviously. Um, so I, need, I had to work. It wasn't a matter yeah. of coming home and not and not doing anything. So um, I looked around and I looked at managing some um, residential and nursing homes. And I wanted to pursue my career still. And I got my MVQs. But, you know, I didn't get to finish my MVQ3 and do my MVQ4, which didn't really give me the skills and the all this. I had the skills. It was the yeah, yeah, yeah. certification and the backup on my CV, really. So I spent a long time looking around, feeling a bit like an odd piece of the jigsaw puzzle. You know, what do I do now? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so it was hard. I, I applied for lots of different jobs. And in the end, I just went back to what what I love doing, which is looking after people. So, I th- in fact, no, I, I, um, I went on agency back to the hospital, to Peterborough District Hospital, <clears throat> and I worked at the Fitzwilliam, which is a private hospital in the endoscopy ward. So I went yeah. back to that environment um, and then I got pregnant, I got pre- which was my intention. Um, I left because I wanted another baby. So I left in the March um, and I was pregnant probably by the September time, I think, with my with my son, Nathan, who's now 22 coming up. I mean, so it looks like a lot of stuff's going right for you, really. Mm. Mm. Uh, you did hit a lull, a lull, and, and maybe your career wasn't clear at the time. So, no. And you didn't want to set up a business, but, or you did and you didn't. So you yeah, it didn't happen. So mm. you went back on the community. Um, and where, where did you go next? Just run me through that part, because I know you've uh, had some interesting challenges. Mm, I have, yeah. Um, what happened was um, I... I worked out in the community. Um, I think I, w- I worked at Salt Hall, which is a hospice, and I did a lot of agency work until I was probably about 37 weeks pregnant. And then I um, I went on maternity or I left. There was no maternity leave because I was at agency working. So, um, And I had Nathan, and, and then I got a job working for a, a nursing agency on call. So when their office in Sleaford finished at five, they pitched their phones through to me. And I would, because we'd have um, requests coming in for nurses, um, you know, if somebody's gone off sick in a hospital, they need cover. So that was my job for a few years. And the kids hated it because I would carry around this mobile phone and this um, file. And whenever the phone rang, they always knew they had to be quiet um, because obviously I I want, it was a professional job. So I needed to, it's like, shh, Uh, they hated that. (laughs) <laughs> so I did that yeah. for a while. Um, and then we had some challenges with Nathan. Nathan didn't speak until he was, oh, well, no, he didn't walk till he was 19 months. He didn't speak properly until he was about three and a half, four. Um, they were, Lucy was at primary school. He went off to nursery part time in the day. So I was there dropping the kids off, picking them up and and sort of doing my job in the evenings. Um, and um, Nathan wasn't progressing. And I knew there was a niggle, this mum's instinct that you get that something wasn't quite right. And he was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, which is on the autistic spectrum and ADHD. And that really hit, well, both of us, me and my husband, like a bit of a bombshell, to be fair. And that really set me off blaming myself. I blamed myself while I was carrying him that I'd done something wrong, something had happened. I was feeling quite sicky. I'd taken some ginger capsules, but I'd, I know for a fact I'd got them okayed by um, the uh, midwife lady that was looking after me. Um, and I just convinced myself for years that it was my fault. And then when two kids come along, our marriage started to get under some strain. Um, you know, I was at home doing the mum thing, plus doing the working. I was absolutely exhausted. And when Nathan, sadly, when Nathan was seven, me and my husband decided to part. Uh, I'd used alcohol um, as a coping mechanism from him being quite small. Uh, I didn't really, you know, it wasn't something really hitting the wine at night. When Lucy was small, it never really occurred to me. It wasn't really a go-to thing. 
but it was the stress of having Nathan plus the stress of having to hold everything together, you know, being a homemaker and, and my job. Um, and yeah, sadly we parted when Nathan was seven and Lucy, I think was 13. So I then, I was only working part-time at that time. Um, and finances were really, you know, stretched. Um, but I managed to find a full-time job and then moved into, uh, some rented accommodation within the village. My husband stayed in the family home and, um, I, I went actually moved into the pub. I used to be a landlady um uh well me and my husband and i moved in in upstairs in the pub for about 4 months until i secured this full time job and you know what joe community is such an amazing thing because um this accommodation had no furniture in it i had i had nothing so um the community rallied round and, pra- and and furnished my house i mean oh, furnished wow. it absolutely wow. everything the only thing i had to buy um, and someone helped me with that purchase was a washing machine. Uh, and I, I was there for two years with the kids. Um, and then um, I'm married to my husband now. We married in 2014. So, yeah, my drinking was a coping mechanism, really, to be fair. And once I left mm-hmm. my husband and went to in, to the uh, rented accommodation, there was nobody keeping an eye on my drinking, and I started drinking at least a bottle of wine a night. Right. Um, okay. Probably progressed to a bottle and a half of wine a night, um, and that probably was maybe a decade or so of drinking. Um, and it was just a way of coping. It was just pushing mm. all that crap. So, yeah. You know. So how do you think? And thank you so much for sharing that because, yeah, thing things were tough, and and and. The blame game, the guilt, the imposter syndrome, call it mm. whatever. So, mm. so with Nathan, it's all your fault. It, it, mm. You're thinking that uh, it's it's terrible what you've done, and mm. then the marriage ends. And I'm so sorry that that happened. Mm. I, I suppose you learn a lot about yourself and you mm. cope and the way you could cope. And and you know what what really came through strongly then was how much and how important a community is. Mm. And yeah, that. definitely. It is. And Joe, I didn't mention the Royal British Legion because um, I sort of threw myself into when I left the army. In fact, I was still serving. And when we moved to the village in 97, I knew there was a British Legion. I'd always been a member because we were encouraged in the army to join. And yeah. they used, yeah. the guys used to come and give us talks, didn't they? Yeah. So I'd been a member for many years. Um, so I got involved in the Royal British Legion and that enabled me to get to know lots of different people. I was the caseworker. So if anybody was ill, I'd go around with a card and a bunch of flowers and visit them. And then I became the treasurer. And then um, I became the chairperson because it was going to fold if nobody could chair it. So I ended up chairing it for like eight years. And and being a part of the community and getting to know everybody, I knew a lot of people. So when when we decided to go into partnership with some neighbours of ours for the pub, which was in the village, um, you know, I I just knew so many people, knew so many people. And, um, yeah, community is what it's all about. And that's the same in the army. It's that that pulling together and it's that leaning on each other and that support um, that you get in a community, which is you can't buy it. It's just fabulous. Yeah. Thank you. And 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 you know, you you mentioned that you remarried in 2014. So and it sounds like you hit the drink pretty spectacularly. Mm. 
Mm. And, and, and and I know we're going to move on to what you do now, which is absolutely amazing. Um, at that time, if you just go back, what was going on in your head that you thought that alcohol could fix everything, or was it just to scratch everything out for a it, for a period? Yeah. Yeah, it it was it was to numb out from what I was feeling. I, I was in an unhappy marriage, you know. Uh, it it was it was difficult, uh, and I, and I we talk. I know you like talk about mindset, and and now with my my self development over the last sort of three and a half years since I stopped drinking, and becoming an alcohol free coach, I've worked a lot on my mindset, and and for me to step back now into that time. When I was with my first husband, I I constantly spoke negatively about my situation, about me, about my husband. Why me? Why am I in this situation? Yeah, yeah. And it just compounded everything, which we know it does, because if you just completely fill your head with all that negativity, that it's the negativity that's going to come out. And I couldn't yeah. see any positivity in my situation whatsoever. I used the drink to numb out. I used the yeah. drink to um, just get away from it and to to relax and de-stress, which I know a lot of women in my situation do that. To, you know, you get the kids to bed and then you want to come downstairs and you want to chill out and it's your time. Yeah. And often that me time was me pouring that glass of wine and thinking, oh, Thank goodness for that. But then the impact of that is getting up the next morning, having to deal with two young kids, yeah, yeah. Um, having to get them to school, having to d- work, having a house to run, feeling like absolute poop, <laughs> yeah. you know, and um, and it just has a massive impact on, you know, relationships. I remember coming back from, we had a British, we were doing a, uh, our one of our chairmen or somebody was leaving our village and I'd organised a, a, a big spread and a big social. That was my part and parcel of me being um, the chair. And this guy yeah. had been in our British Legion for many, many, many years, him and his wife. And I remember going down to the pub and, and doing all the sandwiches and everything and we'd been drinking. And yeah. uh, that was before the event. And I came home and I thought, crumbs, I feel quite wobbly. So I got in the shower it's quite funny now. My husband was not impressed and I was trying to have a shower, trying to sort of sober myself up really. And I grabbed, I lost my balance and fell out of the shower onto the floor. My husband ran up the stairs, see what oh. happened and just went, you know, you piss head. And I was, I, was, I wasn't getting up drinking in the morning. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't, I wasn't sneaking drink. I wasn't hiding drink. I was just drinking in the evenings um, you know, a bottle of wine a night. Well, it wasn't even a bottle of wine a night then, to be fair. It was yeah. probably a couple of bottles in the week. Yeah. Uh, and going out and having a drink with my hubby and the neighbours, it really got bad, um, which was a bottle and a half or so after I left my husband. But, um, yeah, it was just a numb. And then I had, you have all the crap of mm. divorce and yeah. the, you know, the, the arguments I remember the solicitor writing a letter to my ex-husband at the time to say that I was introducing the children to what is now my husband that caused absolute mayhem. Um, And it's Mm. just, you know, I don't want to go around beating my ex with a stick because he's a very good man and he was a a really good husband and a really good dad. It was just the stress of... Um, you know, Nathan, plus other things that had happened 
um, yeah. which I don't really want to go into. No, 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 that's there okay. was a lot of things that happened um, in the past as well. Mm. But that negativity and feeding myself with all that negative self-talk compounded yeah. it even more. Whereas now, if I look back, if I'd have been in the position I was in now, Mm. Uh, I've got no, absolute no regrets, by the way. I want to make that quite clear. What happened, happened. But if I went back to that point in time now with the mindset that I have now, that probably wouldn't have happened no. because it would have been recognised, it would have been dealt with, um, you know, and it might have been, you know, happy, happily ever after. Um, yeah. But... Yeah. It's funny, and and things happen for a reason, don't they, Joe? Yeah. Uh, I've got a relationship with my husband now, which I never ever had with my first husband. Yeah. So, but the drink just was to escape and numb yeah. all those yeah. feelings, and yeah. And it's interesting. This is this is just put into a conversation, which is fairly short. We were looking at ten years here, so sort of progression is just starting from a glass of wine, maybe then. Mm half a bottle, then mm. a bottle, and then you get yeah. to the stage where you want half bottles and totally wipes everything out. So so it's great that you that you've identified that and thank you for sharing. So now what is it what was the point where with all your self-realization that you want to help people? Uh, and now you're happily married uh, in this with your second marriage and your your children are growing up or grown up, in fact. Mm -hmm. So what what's the next venture, if you like? What, what's driving you to succeed? It's my experience. It's my experience with drinking and my experience with how it completely ruin, ruins relationships, um, especially ruins relationships, to be mm. fair, uh, and just takes your identity away slowly, I think, because... Uh, I did my coach training. I um, I did just. I mean, I tried so many times to stop Joe. It was just ridiculous. And it, but yeah. I'd said to my my husband um, Clive, who I'm married to, right? He'll uh, say, you know, he doesn't. Uh, he didn't have. He didn't use alcohol like me. He's a drinker, but just socially. Yeah. So it's like, well, just don't have it Monday to Friday, Carol. And I'm like, that's so easy for you to say. Yeah. I'd moved on to a, a a a job that was quite stressful. And I used alcohol to de-stress when I came home. And I think I got to the point where it, I was getting up feeling really rubbish and it was like, it's just getting ridiculous. So I just decided one day, it was at 2019, 31st, it was Halloween, spookily. I don't even celebrate Halloween, but it was Halloween uh, 2019. And I got up one morning and I just thought after a heavy weekend, that's it. I'm just not going to do it. What happened actually was my son had been got stranded at New Street, Birmingham Station on a bank holiday. Um, they were doing some railway works and um, he'd gone to the NEC to meet a friend. It's the first time he'd ever gone on his own. He was about 19. And um, he rang me up and said, Mum, I've missed the last train. And of course, I'd been drinking. It was about eight o'clock at night. So his dad went and got him. Uh, so that was really a wake up call. And then I'd uh, um, I'd shared a bottle of wine with my husband a couple of weeks previous and wanted another drink and got in the car after two glasses of wine, which I was over the limit, uh, and went and went to Sainsbury's, which is literally around the corner, drove and come back. And those were the two real things that happened. And I just thought, whoa, just hang on a minute here. This is just not on. <clears throat> and I got up that morning and just thought, right, 
I'm going to try. And I actually found that I, I just looked for some support online and I found um, This Naked Mind by Annie Grace. She's an American lady uh, and she's got something called the alcohol experiment and it's scientific based. Now, me being logically brain, me logically thinking, it really spoke to me because it said why I couldn't say no to the alcohol. And, and why who I was, who was that again? The Naked Mind? And This Naked Mind. Yeah. And it's Annie Grace. Thank you. And she explained why I was waking up at 3 a.m. in the morning feeling anxious and worrying. She was explaining why I couldn't just have one drink. She was explaining to me in her book why I couldn't go more more than a couple of days and why willpower didn't work. So all this science and all this, um, you know, the neuro... um, neuroplasticity that yeah, we talk about yeah, and the yeah. um yeah rewiring of your brain and the mindset that's when i got into that and i just thought wow and after about 90 days joe to be fair i'd cracked it i'd cracked right. it i dealt with the cravings and the triggers i'm not saying it still didn't want to drink i still thought about drinking but i was in what you would call a gray area cuz people you know some people might think and listen to me and think oh she was an alcoholic but that's not actually a word. It's alcohol use disorder. Alcoholic is not even a medical yeah. um, diagnosis. Um, but when do you become an alcoholic? Are you an alcoholic if you drink a glass of wine every night for the rest of your life? Or do you have to drink a bottle of wine every night? Or is it when you lose your home, your family? Mm. There's a big, massive space called grey area drinking, which is what I fell into and which millions of people and people listening to this will know if they can't go more than a couple of days without a drink, then they need that drink for whatever reason. And often I was self-medicating because of my feelings of what had happened. And a lot of people do. So I decided to become a coach and I did six months training. Um, This Naked Mind, Annie, she's got coach training. So I'm, I'm, I'm actually a This Naked Mind coach. So I work with the framework and methodology that Annie uses and it's had a hundred percent success in my business when when I started my business a year ago, uh, and I went on to do my international coaching federation um, diploma uh, for coaching, and I've just worked on my personal and self development to a point where I am just not that person anymore that I was back when the kids were little. I am a completely different person, completely different. That's fabulous, and and because I know from personal experience. That that you know the uh, the naffy or in it, when you're overseas, tax free alcohol. I mean, mm. uh, and and I did I get drunk? Of course I did. Yeah. Fortunately, I didn't go that down that slippery path. But I did smoke though, and it was only I, I decided one day I, I recognised that I was I, I did a lot of running. I ran for the cross country for I was regiment and army. And uh, I was a physical training instructor, which you know. Mm. The reason I'm telling you this is because it wasn't until my why became big enough to stop smoking, because it was when my first child, my my wife was pregnant with my first child, I said, right, I don't want to smoke while my child's there. So I just stopped. And that was was my why. So you now have got this this naked mind. Uh, You listen to it. Uh, by Annie Grace, and that was your why. All of a sudden, you just thought, wow, that's it. 90 days from going from one and a half, maybe, and that might be a bit a bit underestimation, right? One and a half bottles, maybe two per night. I mean, that's 
That's a good. lot. That's, that's and a, a couple lot. and a couple of beers. Yeah. yeah well, I used to hate it. If my husband wanted a glass of wine, I'd be like, no, I don't want to share it. But obviously I would have to. In fact, I'd let you into a secret. <laughs> it was such a thing. I used to drink my wine quite quickly. And when when Clive used to nip to the toilet, I used to take a swig out of his glass. <laughs> I, I have owned up to that now. Oh, because... right. well, that was the big confession. <laughs> You're in big trouble now. He does know about that, but but when it when it gets hold of you, your tolerance builds, so you need more and more to get yeah, that buzz, yeah, yeah. and then yeah. you're not getting any enjoyment out of it because alcohol actually, um, uh, it it what's the word? Not numbs your dopamine receptors, but it deadens your dopamine yeah, yeah. receptors, so that feel yeah. good, that feeling doesn't come anymore, and your brain no. stops making its natural dopamine. You see, so once you understand all this. You know, and that's why I love doing what I do because, you know, then then people education is such a powerful thing, isn't it, Joe? You know, yeah. with your the the money and the mindset and the motivation that you you speak in your podcast. Yeah. You know, knowledge and and I see myself as an educator. I don't go around bashing people over the head because they drink. My husband still drinks. He has a bottle of wine over the weekends and beers in the week. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, I just want people to have a choice. So I say to people, look, these are the consequences that could happen. It's a carcinogen. It's a class one carcinogen. Mm. It causes seven different cancers. As long as people know what the consequences are, then they've got a choice, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas if they, our culture just romanticizes alcohol, you know, the drinks industry, uh, now they're getting on the bandwagon of, of uh, zero alcohol, which is fantastic, mm. absolutely brilliant. But people go through life drinking, thinking it doesn't really do any harm when we're all different. You could yeah, be yeah. 85 years old listening to this and you've drank all your life and that's great. But then do you want to, like it was like with me, do you want to play a Russian roulette, put a bullet in a, a gun, swizz it round, put it to your head because you, you're taking a risk, in my opinion, yeah. when you drink alcohol. I, and I know, like, it, they used to say two pints and you were all right to drive. Yeah. And I yeah. know people who had the breath test and they, they'd had two pints and they were over the limit. And then yeah. other people, I know someone who had five pints had the breath test and they didn't even... A bit fine. And, and, yeah. and it was okay because you're talking about tolerance and yeah, how and your, it's body your physique it. and everything. Yeah, yeah and, and it is how you how you um, your liver deals with it. Your liver turns it into something even more toxic called acetaldehyde, and that's where the mutations begin, and that's where the cells start changing because alcohol is water permeable. So it mm. actually affects, like, it's like when I hear GPs, I don't think they do now, but they used to say if you were pregnant, you were okay to drink a little bit. I did a little bit with, with Lucy. We used to go to friends every Saturday and I used to have half a glass. Um, but now, um, you know, it, that permeates every single cell in your body. So that's affecting your, your developing yeah. child, you know, so... We know a lot more now about alcohol, and I'm just I'm just a big advocate. As I say, I'm not a basher over the head. I just want people to realise how toxic it it can be, and then people have got a choice whether they want to drink it or not. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because it's like with the scientists, they're on the wagon, off the wagon, on the wagon, off the wagon, and I'm not saying that alcohol alcohol uh, alcohol. Uh, dependent. What I mean by all on the wagon, off the wagon is sometimes they're saying, oh, a glass of red wine per night is okay. Uh, it's good for you. And then they're saying, no, it's not. And so if they don't even know what they're talking about, that's why <laughs> coaches like you uh, yeah. like, are so important. Um, yeah. Well, 
Right. So you've you've taken a few beatings, metaphorically speaking, yeah. uh, uh, had some challenges. I want to know how you deal with failure. What 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 what's your secret to dealing with failure? That's interesting. I've been a perfectionist all my life, and it's only really been the last couple of years that I've become to realise, and I've come to realise from a lot of self-help literature and self-development stuff I've done that there's no such thing as perfection. And that's probably why I've had a couple of mental health issues um, Mm. over the years, and I think it's been the strain of trying to be perfect and be everything to everybody. Yeah. So failure now to me looks very different. I mm. see failure as um, it's a learning opportunity. Yeah, We all right. learn. And I think through our fail- failures in life and the things we don't get right gives us an opportunity to step back, have a look at what went wrong, what decisions did we make, why did it go wrong, did we have any expectations, were we assuming or presuming things were going to happen in a certain way and they didn't. So I look at failure now as growth potential, mm. uh, especially having your own business, as you know. You know, it uh, it doesn't all go hunky-dory. Whereas failure before used to send me into a spiral of depression. It used to send me into a really, really dark place. And uh, again, that negativity and that monkey mind uh, would be constantly met, 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 met in your ear all, all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, you're useless, you're rubbish. Why can't you do this? You should be doing that. And that pressure we put on ourselves, especially in today's society, we all run at a thousand miles an hour now. Mm. We've got to be everything to everybody. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, let's put the brakes on. And I think people use alcohol as an escapism from that pressure. You know, people turn to alcohol because it's just getting out of your head. You get that lovely buzzy feeling after 20 minutes, but then you're continually chasing that buzz and it disappears. Um, And you just make, you just make, in fact, alcohol just exacerbates anxiety and makes it worse. It's a stimulant, but it's a depressant as well. So, yeah, failure for me was, was not a place I wanted to be. And I always put a smile on my face and pretended to be somebody that I wasn't and a people pleaser, whereas now it is what it is. I, I am who I am, Joe, you know, I am so, who I am. So, well, thank you. And you've, you've already touched on it. I want you to see if you can identify it a bit clear, clearly, a bit more clearly on what's your secret to success? Because... You know, you've had a bit of failure. I mean, I know we can discuss that openly now because you've shared it. <laughs> so now you're successful, and, and I know you want to help even more people. So what's your secret to success? What is it that makes you tick? My faith. My faith in God is a big driver. I, my faith is weird. Up and, it's been like this for, for years. I was brought up living next door to the pastor of the local Pentecostal church, so I was taken from being very small I've had times away from God. God's never left me, but I've chosen to walk away. So um, this last couple of years, my my faith has deepened even more. So that is what makes me tick. But I think for me, it's living in the moment, Joe, and it's yeah. it's actually not future tripping, as some people call it. 
I think if we try and run ahead of our time and get stressed out about what if this doesn't happen, what if that doesn't happen, and, and make up, it's all about stories and our perception, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we can assume and presume a lot of things. And if something happens, like, you know, say somebody was going to ring you, a really good friend, and they didn't ring you, and you were really felt let down, you'd start making a story up in your head. Oh, yeah. you know, we had, you know, this happened and they didn't turn up last time. And then we, you, you start making up all these stories. And I think for me, it is living in the moment and just dealing with what's what's today, like now. I'm talking yeah. to you now. I'm not really, I'm not going to let myself think about what I'm going to have for tea, um, that client I've got next week, how that coaching session is going to turn out, the other call I've got, you know, uh, of a client, whether they're going to sign up to a program of mine or not. I've stopped. I've stopped worrying. I've just started living in the moment. And I think that makes me tick. That makes me, that that drives me. And also knowing that I'm making a difference like thousands of other coaches out there that do what they do, yeah. you know, making a difference in people's lives. I, I, I volunteer for a local mental health charity. They really helped me when I was going through a, a bad patch. It's called Mindspace in Stanford. Check them out online. They're a fantastic charity. Mind, Mindspace in Stanford. Mindspace, yeah. Dr. Uh, Dan Petrie started it about seven years ago, one of the local GPs. And I volunteer there. And I actually use the 30-day program that Annie, uh, that I took when I started my um, alcohol-free journey and it's completely free and that's open to the local community. And, um, you know, that's uh, that's just an opportunity for people to find out about Mindspace do lots of things. You know, they've got lots of health and fitness things on yoga and meditation and boxing and all sorts. But it's a, it's a hub and it's a space for people to come. Yeah. So I, it's just making a difference and, and having opportunities to make a difference into people's lives because life on the other side of the bottle for me is in technicolor. I just yeah. wish I could put a person that relies on alcohol to get them through whatever situation they're in. I wish I could put them in my shoes just for a, yeah. a Friday till a Monday morning. Yeah. Because never in a million years did I think that I'd be sat here, you know, three and a half years later. I've saved well over seventeen thousand pounds in drink. I've saved well over eighty weeks of time that I would have sat on on the couch watching TV, my life is just completely different. And my relationships are completely different yeah. too. Yeah. And that's, that's like 17,000 pounds. And without, I mean, just looking at the monetary value, I mean, like mm. that's, that's like the net, the take home pay after a salary mm. of 25 K or something, you know, mm. I, I mean, that's like, fab and then just having your life back, and you're talking about social network. I know, I know you're building your business network as well. I mean, how important has that been to to the recreation of Carol Uri? You know, what what has that done for you? Community is really important. Um, when I first stopped drinking, the uh, the thirty day experiment that I was on had a community with it, and there were other communities, um, alcohol free communities. There's a ton of them on social media. That really kept me going because it was all about accountability, Joe, really. And yeah. I felt, um, you know, I needed to keep going for some people because you build some really strong relationships with people. Uh, and that's very much like um, 
I mentioned community where I am now. Um, we're in Lent at the minute on the 22nd of February that started. And I offered, uh, I sent a message around to all the local churches and hired the local Methodist church um, to bring people together for community um, just on the Christian side. Um, yeah. Something different. Uh, sadly, nobody took me up on that, but I'm not, I'm not, um, I don't feel let down about that. What I feel that's done is planted some seeds in the community as well. So moving forward for me and my business, uh, I mean, I'm in networking groups. Um, as you know, we have a great WhatsApp community with, mm. it's, it's interesting because you see, you sort of pass people and, and everybody is in a, similar situation like we, we jump on a podcast training or we jump on linkedin training or we do this training and you often see people don't you in the same yeah, space yeah, yeah. it's, yeah, it's yeah. really interesting yeah so um i mean my my vision for the future is to bring an alternative to giving up alcohol so instead of the traditional roots of aa and detox and rehab yeah and there's like turning point and smart there's lots of fantastic um uh you know programs out there and you've got to find what suits you and not everything suits everybody whereas what i offer uh, and what this naked mind offers is an alternative and it's more of a logical science-based framework so i'd like to get this uh, and that's why i work with mindspace and and i'd like to get into the gp surgery because it, there's lots of things that are completely free so if GPs out there, instead of saying go to AA or go to SMART or referring them to a rehab or detox as an outpatient, if they could say to them, here's a program, um, I'm hoping to develop like a 30-day a program, an audio of me, completely free for them to say, follow this link, go to this program uh, and have, I just have an alternative. And if I yeah. could get that out locally and then nationally, um, which is lot, what all our This Naked Mind coaches in the UK, because it, it's worldwide, it's started in the States, it's in Australia, Canada, Europe, um, it's all over the place. Absolutely. So getting this alternative into community and giving people the option and, and finances not being a barrier yeah. because – you know, I'm not I'm not making a sweeping statement by saying this, but people that live in poverty do use alcohol. But then there's people that are in, you know, high powered jobs that use alcohol, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you're in poverty and you can't afford that seven pound bottle of wine, but you need it, it means something else in the homes giving. Yeah. Uh, and I want to bring that um, that it's not. You know, it's not shaming and it's not judging. It's completely done in a non-judgmental way yeah, because yeah. I understand I've been there. I've got T-shirt. I know what it feels like to need that glass. So, yeah, that's my that's my my prayer, really, is to bring it out into my community and then it, it just roll out nationally. Yeah. That's just that, that's such a worthy, a worthy mission to have. Now, because I know you're a great coach and mentor to get you where you are, right, throughout your life, whether it was in the QAs back to get you through training or even before training, working on a community, and the ups and downs. Uh, I suppose you've met a few coaches and mentors in your time, haven't you? And how important have they been to, to making you the great person you are today? Oh, massively, massively. 
I mean, I didn't even know about this world that exists that I'm in now. You know, you're bimbling around doing your stuff and then you decide to get into self-development and you start investing in yourself because, you know, we do. I mean, like you, I've invested um, tens of thousands of pounds in my yeah. training and, and my my uh, what I do coaching over the last sort of two or three years. Um I mean, I follow Rob Moore and Rob mm. is some people is a bit like Marmite. Some people don't like him. Some people love him. I yeah. think he's a lovely, genuine soul. And um, I actually work part time for him at the minute on his social media. So I summarize his um, his lives that he does, right, uh, and okay. YouTube messages and things. So I am learning a ton of stuff about this lovely, um, lovely guy who's got a real heart for people. Um, and I'm in a mastermind in Birmingham, which uh, I've been doing on marketing and sales. Uh, and Matt Elwell, who's the Elite Closing Academy, and Nick James, who's from Expert Empires. Um, they, I'm glad I found them right at the beginning of my journey. Um, I travel up to Birmingham every month, and they've really laid helped me lay the foundations of my business through structure. Uh, and through like you say sales and people think it's yucky sales but the sales Matt teaches is about serving and about service and if that person's not a right fit for you then you don't work with them it's not like trying to get get them to come into your space it's whether or not they want to and you you align together so people like like those mentors and Annie uh, I'm in Annie's mastermind and I, I have the privilege to be on uh, zoom with Annie um, once or twice a month, uh, with a you know another handful of people, and to find out what's happening in the alcohol world, and Ireland uh, mm. have have actually decided they're looking at putting labelling on their on their alcohol now, and there's been absolute uproar from Italy uh, about this, but I think it's the way forward. It's like with cigarettes, they hide them now, don't they? And you see yeah, those yeah. horrible pictures on them. Whereas I think alcohol, because it's a drug and because it's addictive and because it's a carcinogen, I think rightly so it should be labelled that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, being in this space, you've also got the opportunity to make changes, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, it's interesting because I know Nick James and Matt Elwell and Rob Moore, as, um, and I know them really well, and that's why that's the reason I developed the mastermind and beyond program and the coaching and transform a business network, because I believe that it's about helping people, isn't it? That's, yeah, that's what really drives us. I suppose the Columbo question, like, Oh, just one more thing <laughs> is you've been at the sharp end, right. In, in many, many ways. And by the way, I want you to tell us how the people can get in touch with you. The listener can get in touch with you mm -hmm. to find out more about what you do. What's the one top tip you'd give to someone who's leaving the military or has left the military, maybe just not found a way yet, uh, and and how valuable and transferable their skills are? Mm, that's from, a good from, from question. Being in the yeah. yeah, very good question. Transferable skills. I mean, you've got the resettlement, um, but it. I suppose it depends what what you've been doing. I think most skills are transferable, but then it's. Really, I think you can use it as an opportunity to open a door into a different life and a different lifestyle as well. So for me, I was leaving because of motherhood, really, and I wanted mm, to yeah. pursue my, you know, be-at-home mum. Top tip, crumbs. 
I think it's probably to think of the pros and cons and to actually write it down. I'm a big I'm a big person for journaling. I think it's important to because you don't always speak it out to somebody, but if you brain dump it on paper and just say, okay, what are my skills? These are all my skills. What what am I wanting to do and looking to do when I leave the military and put all that down on paper and see if there's any any connection between the two. I think I think brain dumping and getting it out on paper, I think is an important thing. But also use it as an opportunity to open another door. Yeah. And and, and try something. Because we've all got deep-seated wants and dreams and goals, haven't we? Yeah, and yeah. maybe you fell into the military because that was good at that time, you know, and it seemed the right thing to do, but maybe you've got a deep-seated need and a dream that you want to pursue. So use your resettlement, use your, you know, some people are leaving at 22 years and maybe get a gratuity and get their, their pension straight away. Yeah. So use that to follow your dreams because we're only here for a short time. Um, yeah. And I think it's important to, to be fulfilled and that's why you and I went into coaching to help people. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thank you. And how can people get in touch with you? Um, I, my working name is Warrior Mum Coaching. So if you look at Warrior Mum Coaching, I'm on Instagram and I'm on Facebook, but also under Carol Uri, which is U-R-R-Y. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook. And I've started going into TikTok. <laughs> oh, I, mean, I know. Very interesting, it is. <laughs> and, and you're ex-military and really security conscious, and you're going on TikTok. Hey, yeah, yeah. They don't, don't let the government know. No, they, they don't. You see, I don't mention. That's why this has been really interesting because I don't really mention my military career at all. I don't talk about it at no. all. So it's been quite. It's been quite nice, Joe, chatting to you about. Yeah. You know, oh. the, the, those times. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to share. No, I thank you. It. Because I think that, because I, I and, and I know this will resonate with you, you don't, you don't know who you're talking to. No, you don't. You never know. And and did, here's, here's the thing, because with the charity I work with, Transformation for Veterans, it helps veterans. We did a survey and looked at stuff, and the MOD haven't got the figures. I mean, they don't even track half the stuff. By the research that I did, people who are directly influenced by the military, i.e. they've served, or indirectly, they're either married to, know someone, got a relation, relationship with someone, or through family. Mm. Guess how many of the population of 65 million in the UK are, are connected to the military in some way? It's, what, percentage-wise? Yeah, or the number. Yes. Oh, I wouldn't even think. I, I would guess at a percentage of... 80% maybe? Well, yeah, that's a that's a big percentage. I got it down to about 22 million people that I can find mm. di directly or indirectly. And that's that's just it, you know. That's phenomenal, isn't it? Yeah. It really and, and, and that's why I'm do that's why these chats are so important to me. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And it is important because it's a big part of our lives, the military. It has a yeah. massive impact on us and it has a massive impact on the people, that our immediate family, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, no, you're doing a fantastic job. There's one thing um, I'll say, Joe, before we wrap up, if I may. I do yeah. have if um, any – I work with women predominantly, so if okay. there's any mums out there, specifically mums that are – 
finding it hard to sort of um, stop drinking or to even take a break. There's, I've got a free PDF on my website, which is warriormumcoaching.com. If you go onto my website, you can download that for free. And it's really giving people tips. It's what I didn't know at the start of my journey. So I've put tips and bonuses together for ladies out there that really want to sort of take a break and look at their drinking. And of course, they can get in touch with me on my contact button on the website too. Thank you so much. So that's warriormum.com and a downloadable guide that they can use yeah warriormumcoaching.com oh sorry warriormumcoaching.com yeah that, that's so great thank you so much for no, your it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you and i know we're going to keep continue the conversation later but yeah. i mean thank you so much <laughs> you're welcome joe thank you